Good afternoon, Michael Malice here. Let that be your welcome for the next hour. Sometimes I really, really, really like this gig because I get paid decent money to talk to people I really like and everyone seems to enjoy it and it's joy all around, but they canceled. So this week I have... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sour Patch Lids, Lydia Leiterman. Lydia, you have been known for years as the producer on TimCast. We've become good friends as a result of this. A lot has changed in your life in the last few years. Uh, you're actually also one of the most strongest pro-life people I know, which I want to talk to you about in this episode as um, I've become much more amenable to the pro-life position. But first, let's discuss your big news with what's going on with Timcast IRL and how you came to this decision. Yeah, so we did end up leaving Timcast, but it's all good. There's zero beef. Very grateful. This is, after all, where I met my husband, who's helping me set up this super cool studio. Um, we left because we want to move closer to family because we're trying to actually build real, like, real life community. So that's our, our real thrust is trying to figure out how to create and facilitate cultural cohesion, which is also going to be most of the content I'm creating is going to be pushing toward that end. That's kind of where we're at right now. So how long have you been at Timcast? I was there from the beginning. I was there right at the tail end of 2019 before the pandemic. So I was there all the way through the pandemic when we didn't have any guests. And then when we started to bring guests back more and moved to Maryland there through all of that. So I was the most seniorest TimCast employee until I left. So were you nervous to make this jump? This is a big deal. Yeah, I was. And we're very much still flying by the seat of our pants. Like you should see this lighting setup I have behind me. It's crazy. Um, but we, my husband has the know-how. And I have like kind of the public face. So I feel like we're going to be unstoppable. I'm delighted for this. It's really exciting. How did Tim react when you gave him the news? Did he, did he take off his beanie and rage and bring <laughs> no. it on the floor? No, no. He understands that life is part. Like this is just one of those stages of life. Like even before this happened, he was like, hey, you might need someone to cover for you if you need maternity leave. Maybe we should bring someone in to kind of cover for you if you do end up needing to do that. And I was like, that's a good idea. We should do that. That was what, when I started looking for someone to kind of replace me, it took three people to replace me, which was, I was like, wow, I was working really hard, apparently doing three people's jobs. I was the production team at Timcast RL. So now I've got a few different people to replace me and they're going to be just fine. I'm stoked. They're going to be good. So what, what are you going to miss the most about the show? I met the most awesome guests in person, like you and all of our other awesome guests. I got to greet them, spend some time with them before we were even on air. And some of our conversations were really fun, really candid, nothing really crazy, but nothing was off limits. So I really enjoyed that kind of um, genuine connection with super cool people that you usually only see online. Okay. So now that you're gone and you can talk smack. Um, who were, maybe you don't even want to name names that you could just tell the stories. Who were the biggest, besides myself, the biggest, uh, prima donnas that you've had to deal with over the years? So I was really pleasantly surprised at the very low number of prima donnas. Um, there were a few people who needed special accommodations. We had some people who didn't fly certain airlines because of all the mask altercations. Okay. They got. That's fair. Five, perfectly understandable. Then I had, I had one guest 
who by the time I was done arranging everything for them, I had almost 60 emails in this email chain. And I was like, that's a lot. Usually it's like five or six emails. We can get everything sorted out within that time frame. But everyone has been very nice in person for the most part, like 99.999% of the time, super nice. So I, it really has given me a really good positive impression of the right. Like for all the maybe very low level gossip and issues people might have with each other, they're very high quality people with like really, really just nice, polite, the right mentality for dealing with others. So that was encouraging for sure. So one of my goals is to make Washington, D.C., if I can't nuke it, um, <laughs> my plan B is to make it as much as like Arkham Asylum as possible. Oh, yeah. So how <laughs> I'm going to ask you about someone who has a reputation in the media for being a complete lunatic, but at the same time, there's lots of people who you and I know who people would regard as reasonable, but we know that they're actually completely off their chain. On a scale of one to Harley Quinn, how crazy is Marjorie Taylor Greene in person and her energy? She's so nice. I remember. I, asked you. I, have, I have to tell you. I have to tell you, she is crazy nice. And Tim and I, for a while, we were like, oh, what if she comes on and says something super crazy? So we kind of like put her off for a little while. Okay. But people hit us up and then we were like, okay, we got to just make it really clear to her what she can and can't say. And hopefully she'll abide by all our rules. If we got to cut it, we got to cut it. She was so nice. She was like a soccer mom. She's like really just very charming and very like welcoming. Um, the only other person who's kind of similar to her was Carrie Lake, who was also very, very charming, very charismatic, warm, motherly kind of personality. But yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene's she's great. Nothing I had Carrie her. on this show, and one of my rules is I try to. I was just talking about this with Dr. Drew when I was in LA last week on his show. It's going to drop soon. One of my I always try to make the guests feel. I my rule is. I'm not going to have the guest have negative consequences for being in my show. Right. And right. since she was campaigning, this was before even the, the, she clinched the nomination for the Republican governor. I wasn't going to troll her or go hard because I felt, you know what, I'm setting myself up to make this show a danger zone for prominent personalities. And I don't want to do that for myself and what, you know, whatever. And, but I felt she was somewhat robotic. She very much kind of stuck to the script and was delivering like her talking points, which makes perfect sense if you're running for a nomination and as someone who's not a political figure. Was that your experience with her? No, and I think that that might be the difference between doing it on a computer and doing it yeah. in person. Because she was just able to be herself behind the scenes. She brought us all her merch. She's just like, oh, should I do this? Should I do this? Got to brush my hair or whatever. It's like very small things that are kind of behind the scenes typically that make a person more personable. Um, whereas I think it's easy to have like a little script over here, slightly off screen where you have all the talking points and it's possible you caught her closer to the election than we had her to. So maybe that made a difference to her. Maybe she might've been like, all right, I got to tighten up what I'm saying or whatever, but no, she was good. Very warm. Um, yeah. So recently I, I want to hear the, and again, like I didn't, I didn't ask you beforehand what we can and can't talk about. So if there's something you don't want to talk about, that's fine. I'm not telling tales outside of school. Um, I remember recently there was a huge bit of drama with the singer Ariel Pink, where, uh, where yeah. he made some comment uh, and Tim just looked at him and was like, we can't talk about that. And the yeah. episode vanished. Can we, can you give me some more information about what actually happened there? Yeah. So, and I'm not sure how carefully you want me to put this just because I want to be 
you know, cautious and respectful of your show's guidelines too. But he said something that broke the rules. And I don't know if you remember when Alex Jones was on the first time, he said something about agreeing with Bill Gates. And then he, ha- and then he said something about a style of execution, basically. Yeah. So that's really what Ariel said. He came on too strong because um, uh, I think Ian was mentioning something about how you can't get rid of ideas like in the Middle East when we were fighting the Taliban ISIS. You don't get rid of ideas that easily. And Ariel said, yeah, to get rid of an idea, basically you have to get rid of the person. It was like the first thing out of his mouth. And we were like, this is too much. Like Tim just considered it too great of a risk. And he's like, I think that YouTube's going to shut it down if we don't take it off. I felt terrible about that episode. Ariel was so upset. I was like, well, maybe we didn't. Upset why? Because he felt like he ruined everything. Oh, he ruined I felt guilty. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I felt so bad. Um, he didn't do anything wrong. And I know it wasn't intentional. It's just YouTube has strict rules. If we'd been behind like some kind of paywall, it would have been fine. We could have unpacked it and been like, well, no, actually, that's not the only way to get rid of an idea. Even if you do that, the idea doesn't go away. Um, but yeah, that was all it was. I just felt bad. And hopefully he can get another um, shot at it sometime in the future. There was also a great moment with Ian. I've had Ian on the show as well. Ian Crossland, know. in my opinion, and I want to hear your thoughts as well, is someone who really grows on you as a person. Because the first time uh, like he was, I didn't realize he had become a co-host one time I was there and he kept interjecting. I'm like, why is this guy talking? And I was being a total, <laughs> I was being a total asshole to him. Total, it's just all on me. I was I just being know. myself, total asshole. Um, <laughs> and, but then I, he's just now become one of my absolute favorite people i think he really thinks outside the box he's very sincere and so on but i remember <laughs> what am i my actually this is probably my favorite ian moment where tim was talking about how easy it is to make like a certain form of like de- oh, deadly gas in the yes. home and that ian's like yes kids fun. do not mix you this not, household <laughs> item with this one and he gave the recipe and tim's like i just told you not to say that he goes no no i'm saying you shouldn't <laughs> this, this and this and Tim's just staring that was, at him that was one of my favorite moments too I was just like what is happening I'm just Can like switching t- cameras like robotically I'm just like huh I want to do I'm just gonna switch back and forth it's not like moving the camera it's gonna make it so that they can't talk anymore I don't have a way to mute his mic from here I was like there's nothing I can do so that was fun <laughs> what so- was the energy like in the room at that moment palpable it was palpable you could have cut it with a knife for sure and poor Justin, because it was Justin from Phoenix Ammunition who was on with us that day. He's like, what's happening? And I was like, I don't know, but this is not good. <laughs> I was like, oh, geez, Ian, why? But Are Tim you- Tim kept like trying to correct him because Ian said, it, it's if you mix, mix bleach with bleach. And Tim's like, oh, that's not what you do. I'm like, oh, stop, stop, stop talking. Shh, shh, shh but he kept going like he kept pushing it like that was both their faults I think we were um Andy and I were talking about this the other day and we're like if Tim hadn't been like trying to set the record straight Ian never would have given that stupid formula oh my gosh (laughs) that was horrible go ahead (laughs) no no that's fine it's just cracking me up thinking about it it was this is a softball question, but I do very much want to hear your thoughts. Why do you think the show has, what do you owe the success of the show and how it's gotten so popular so quickly? Because the numbers are crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. I, it's shocking to me how big it became. And I think it's, 
it's a great combination of really cool factors. So it's the fact that Tim started from the ground up, which people really identify with yes. and he's very much um, not higher education. He's very much, you know, I quit high school, whatever. So he's not preaching down at anyone, which I think is helpful. And then of course, Ian is wacky enough that people are just tuning in just to see what he says this time around. And, um, and then the guests, I, I like to think that the guests play a pretty important role because I always did my best to bring in the coolest people. And there are some really cool episodes in there. And I think it's, it was a combination of those factors that really brought it all together. Plus the dependability, like every weeknight, yeah. about the time that people would be turning on CNN, they're turning on Tim Gassaro instead, which I think is a great way to compete with mainstream media. So, so yeah. Pe- people, do, people seem to have this idea. It's not entirely false that YouTube has these arbitrary rules. And if they don't like you, or if you're a conservative, they're just going to demonetize you or yank you. That is not entirely accurate because there are certain broad rules that they do stick to. Um, and, you know, they're kind of known by people who are in the street. And like, I'll give you one example of a rule that I broke and then they fixed because Warren Harding who was the president from 1921 to 1923, he was accused of having African-American blood and they called him America's first N-word president. I'm not even going to say it, but when I said it in that historical context, like YouTube caught it because of the algorithm, it wasn't even the N-word. It was like a very, it was like, you know, what, the, uh, um, what it was at the time. Um, right. And then Tim's like later, no, no, you can't say that. Like it just, just that term flags YouTube. Can you give people watching this certain, things to they know to avoid because a lot of times they're catching a strike or whatever when it's something that's eminently avoidable yeah 100 percent. what we found over the course of our angling with the algorithm was that you can't there are terms that are not acceptable period there's a few one starts with a t one starts with an r obviously starts with an n so these are words that you cannot, should not say in any circumstances because that's what the algorithm sees. And then the t- wait, let, let me inter- interrupt you because is the T word used for people who are transgender? It's a, that slur. That's the it's word. Kind of a slur. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because Blair, my buddy Blair White, she used that word to describe herself. And as a result of that, TikTok banned her. Yeah. That'll do it. It's crazy to me that you can't even use a word to describe yourself. Yeah. But unfortunately, if you want to be on these platforms, you're going to have to really carefully. To me, it doesn't even feel like this is the U.S. anymore. This doesn't feel very free and easygoing or anything. But you got to use these platforms against themselves, which we I felt like we did really, really well. Everyone would yell at us and be like, why are you still on YouTube? You know, you're playing by their rules. And it's like we're using their platform to direct people to the site which I thought was the perfect combination of factors. So you need to stay on the platform, unfortunately, love it or hate it, to continue to do that. Um, Yes, don't insult people with any of these terms. Um, To get back to what we were talking about earlier, like the T word, if Blair was using it to describe herself, then it could have been viewed as an insult. Um, Really any term like that that can be used as an insult, the algorithm is going to grab and say, oh, this person is being harassing, bullying, whatever, targeting people because of their orientation or whatever. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. You also don't say that any historical election was. And these are, I think these are pretty accessible facts. We tell this to pretty much all our guests because a lot of them are kind of, you know, asking questions about what happened. 
Um, when we just say you can't say it was, you can say you have questions. Maybe you're curious about election integrity. That's fine. Just don't say blank. Um, what's the other thing you can't say? I don't remember. There's one other thing. It's like, oh, something about I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. That's right. too, right? So yeah, just that's pretty much it. It's it's actually pretty straightforward. And we always tried not to swear because we were trying to be a family friendly um, organization. Well, also, uh, I think if there's certain terms, if you were referring to people who prey on children in a sexual manner, you can't use those terms that that sets up alarms for them as well. So I wouldn't speak to that because that's actually something we just stayed away from altogether unless in the after show. That was one of those things we just felt more comfortable speaking frankly about in the bonus segment when we could say whatever we thought. So, Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I know that that word was banned on Twitter. The one that starts with a G. No, but the P, the one that starts with a P, I feel like we're on Sesame Street, but I I think (laughs) even that one flags things is my understanding. So it's, but at this, you know, I'll defend YouTube in this regard. If you are going to be talking about um, something that's so sensitive, it might behoove people to you know, really be very careful about it, especially because it's a child-friendly uh, um, platform, ostensibly. It's, it's claiming to be, which is right. completely is not. So it's following COPPA, which I'm not familiar with all the details on, and you absolutely must mark all your videos as not geared toward children, because if they are, we found out the other day, you can't have any kind of chat on a live stream that's for wow. children. It's very interesting, which I think is fine if something is geared toward children you probably shouldn't be having the watchers interacting with strangers on the internet yeah that's fair but I feel like that should all be laid out and I've always so I remember when I first started watching YouTube I would watch PewDiePie and he would constantly complain about the ridiculous rules that YouTube had and he's like you can't get a straight answer they keep changing things they don't tell you why they don't tell you what you've done wrong that's never changed it's been incredibly frustrating so basically we just tread very lightly we try not to give, for example, formulas for things that we shouldn't, and we try not to like accuse anyone of doing anything or call anybody names. I, so, I, rem- I remember when I was writing The New Right, this was a big issue on Twitter because many people who were kind of in this whole New Right space were getting booted or, you know, because they're, and, and, or just, or even conservatives or, or even, a very, they're even a few leftists, and they're complaining that tw- Twitter just doesn't say like, look, just tell us what the rules are. Because then we'll, we'll obey. This is your space. Like, fine. And their answer was, we don't say what the rules are because then people can work around them. So it was very clear that their purpose for these rules wasn't to, as they say, to promote positive conversation or corporate jargon. They mean they're like, we're setting up, I don't want to say traps, but mechanisms so that if there's someone or some organization that we don't want on our platform, we now have a very easy rationalization to get them the heck out of there. And, and we don't want people to modify their behavior to stay here. We just want to make it as uncomfortable for them as possible, which from a corporate perspective, isn't completely crazy. Right. So to me, this just looks like um, it's, it's freezing speech. You know, it's, it's making, just making it harder. And I really think that what these companies have discovered is that if they can get people to censor themselves yes. then they don't have to do it which technically correct i guess you're not wrong i mean it's incredibly unethical immoral and damages the fabric of our entire culture but you know if you can get people to do it then you save yourself a step and you don't ever have to fully explain your rules so i guess good for them 
but I am, it doesn't really surprise me that they're unwilling to exactly elaborate what the rules are. Because if you're trying to lay a trap for your ideological enemy, makes sense not to, right? Shady. One of the things, let's, let's change tax a, a little bit. One of the things coming from New York, New York City, is that you, growing up, you literally never hear their pro-life perspective. It's just mm. not a thing. Um, in fact, I remember when I had my old show Nightshade, there was a bill that was passed in either North Carolina or South Carolina that was restricting well, access to abortion. And the bill had passed. And in that bill, they were interviewing someone from either Planned Parenthood or NARAL or something like that, saying why the bill was a bad idea and you know why they were opposing it. But nowhere in the article, I think this is either AP or Yahoo, was the pro-life position put forward. There wasn't even a pretense of like, here's why people are against it. Here's why people are for it. It was just like, here's the bill. It sucks. And here's why. And it was such brazen propaganda that I'm like, I want to hear the pro-life perspectives. I mean, I'm going to agree with it, but why are people passing this bill? It got a you know a majority in, in the state house. But as time has gone on, and I've talked to people like you and talked to people who are conservatives, a lot of what is portrayed or had been portrayed as, you know, oh, this is just right-wing extremism. No one believes, no one believes this. No one advocates for this. This is crazy. It, you know, it becomes championed and, and, and promoted. And, you know, it's something where I've had to kind of, despite being male, had to kind of engage and understand it more. So one of the things, I know it's a long setup. One of the things I started recently doing is looking state by state by what abortion restrictions are, because obviously it's different in every state. And I, last week, I was very disturbed to see that there are many states that have, you know, third trimester is if woman's, you know, life is in danger or the kid has no a possibility of survival. That, that's a very disturbing, tragic situation. No one's going to put two and two together, argue with that. But states like Vermont and DC and California have it, it there are no restrictions at all, including they don't even say, third trimester only under these extreme situations. Now I was talking to a friend of mine last week and she said, yeah, it only happens, you know, in those States in these extreme situations where the woman basically is forced to deliver a a deceased child. But I'm like, but that's not what the law says. And if you go to the Vermont websites, they were saying, this is how we handle it in the third trimester. And I, can you give me, am am I misreading this? Because it seems so disturbing to me that I'm like, I want to think I'm misunderstanding. I wish you were, but I don't think you are. When they overturned Roe, there were a lot of people from Europe who were speaking up about American abortion laws. And I wanted to educate those people because I don't know if they understand that the U.S. has some of the most lax abortion laws in the world. I think we're with Canada, North Korea, and then some other Western country in that we will just allow abortion willy-nilly up to, and if you're Ralph Northam, after the point of birth, which should be unsettling to people and make you ask why. Um, I think what happened with abortion was that we made it safe, legal, and rare, and people started to use it as a form of birth control. It removed this layer of responsibility from femininity, which has always been like, I would call it our sacred duty because I'm a conservative. Um, I think that uh, I think that what what happened with abortion is the tragedy because I'm from Colorado and from my understanding, well, I remember in Boulder there was an abortion clinic that would offer abortions all the way up to pretty much the end of pregnancy. Um, it was very carefully guarded, very very um, 
secure, very thick bulletproof glass on the outside because they were afraid that people would attack. And I understand there were attacks on abortion centers, but it really is every bit as disturbing, I think, as you think it is. Um, most of the places in Europe have like 15 week abortion bans. They have like, you know, they have very serious, they take it very seriously and people there don't end up using it as a form of birth control. Unfortunately, in the US, it's become commonplace. And we've gotten to the point where like the Women's March, you know how people used to say nobody's actually pro-abortion. People just want women to have the choice. The Women's March just came out and tweeted it the other day. And they're like, oh no, we're we're absolutely pro-abortion. Did you not see that I ratioed them? I'm glad that you did. I did see that. Yes. I was, I was very grateful to you for doing that because it was like, how is it just evil? And this is something that I wanted. I actually wanted to ask you about it because I remember you used to talk about Margaret Sanger and you're like, she's kind of misunderstood. This isn't really what she was saying. And I remember reading her some of, some of her stuff and I was like, okay, well, as far as quality of life and not wanting to have 15 children and know eight of them dying before they were the age of two or whatever, I do understand that, but when, I don't remember, you, what, what was your stance on Margaret Sanger, and have you changed that at all since you- No, been- not at all. So talking okay. to Margaret, about Margaret Sanger to pro-life people is like talking to leftists about Trump and Charlottesville. Like, they, they, they literally can't hear it. Margaret Sanger was pro-life. She invented Planned Parenthood to cut down on the number of abortions. Planned Parenthood never performed abortions in her lifetime. People seem to think, and I don't understand how they get this idea in their head, that they're performing abortions in New York in 1920, 50 years before Roe, when getting a beer was a felony. That was not the case. She, her point was, you have these poor women, they are not taught the mechanics of birth control. She invented the term birth control. So she tried to spread the use of contraceptions and diaphragms so that people who are destitute don't get pregnant if they don't want them, because very often they are so poor, this is before the welfare state, they are driven to either get abortions or the kids are starving to death, which you just regard as complete barbarous and despicable. Now, Planned Parenthood is, you know, as you know, is, is the world's biggest provider. I don't know what the world's, but they're an abortion factory. That was not, if you read any of her writings, it's perfectly clear. It's also really funny. Her other thing is they, they're like, oh my God, she's a total racist. She worked with W.B. Du Bois with, from the NAACP, and they talk about an example of her speaking to the Klan, right? Mm-hmm. And the question is, if you're telling the women in the Klan not to have more kids, is that a bad thing? Why would a racist be doing that? So she was very concerned with, and we have to keep in mind, this is also the early 1900s. You had these huge, it was legal. There's no such thing as raping your wife. Like you could legally do whatever you want with your wife. These women would have many kids. Their husband's gone. They have no education. They have no hope of getting a job. There's no welfare or any kind of food stamps or anything. And now they have 12 kids. It, it's, and they don't really know how to prevent pregnancy. It was hard for her. She had to fight laws because fighting for birth control was illegal because it was regarded as pornography. So discussing reproduction. So that's the state. And if you look her up, like all of this is easily independently verifiable, but she denounced abortion constantly. And her whole point of Planned Parenthood was it would be planned and not to have abortions. Okay. So interesting. Cause I had read some of what she's written and she was talking about like pruning or weeding the human garden and that to me just came across as too close to eugenicsy to me for comfort. oh no it is eugenics she was absolutely a genesis that's not even a question so right. there was a big movement in the early 20th century 
about breeding a better human race. Now, everyone still practices eugenics because people who, for example, if I think most people would agree, if you have a kind of genetic abnormality that if you have kids, they're going to be DOA, God forbid, you might want to think twice about having kids. You might want to adopt or do something else, something like that. So eugenics is practiced uh, in, in Hasidic communities, which are you know very much inbred Hasidic Jews. There's even a phone number where if you and I wanted to date, we would call and they would and make sure we're not cousins. That's eugenics as well. So yeah, she was not unique in being eugenics, a genesist, but that is very much a fair criticism of her. Well, it sounds like that was par for the course at the time. Yes, but she was definitely in the forefront of that. So you, it's not that she was innocent. No, no. If you're, if people are going to criticize her, that is the strongest, fairest criticism. People also get confused because they think eugenics means white supremacy. She, it was not the case. She was very much about breeding a better human race. Trying to make people better. Yeah. Is it's that one's kind of tricky because there is obviously this strong distaste for any form of eugenics but the fact of the matter is that you don't want to reproduce with your cousin it actually is a problem like it actually does result in some genetic issues although i think at this point in time the general population has enough genetic diversity there there's a lesser i remember learning about this there's a lesser chance of having those serious genetic abnormalities unless you do it repeatedly like if unless like you know three generations have done it consistently but that is very interesting. And I'm glad that you explained that about Margaret Sanger, because I remember coming away thinking, how yeah, really, like, I don't know how you could say that Margaret Sanger wasn't, you know, terrible, whatever, but she clearly was thinking very deeply about the stuff. And I do think that Planned Parenthood has just gone completely off the rails. I think that, man, it's a little bit like the, the gender affirming care that yeah, they're offering yeah. in Nashville. It just makes money. It's just pure, unbridled, unmoored, I don't think it's just that. I think there's an ideology to it. And one of the things I find most disturbing about the Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortion, as it was pro-abortion, the Women's March, isn't even this idea of feminism. This is women reclaiming their own bodies. I personally know a fair amount of people who are desperate to have kids and for different reasons they were unable to. So when they hear someone blithely being like, you know, I had an abortion, I don't care. Like those women are the ones who have to be like, I would do, and but they can't say anything, who would be like, right. I would do anything to have taken that kid from you. Like, right. but like it's, it's a, I think a little, like I get the sense of defiance and being like, oh, you pro-lifers are so bad, you know, screw you. But the, the people that they're upsetting aren't really the pro-lifers. It's also the women out there and men who really want to have kids and can't and are losing an opportunity. And I'm sure, I know for a fact, it's like a knife in the heart for them to hear these kind of things. Yeah, it is hard. I don't know if you know, but Annie and I are trying to get our own family going. So we're to the point where I'm like, well, what if it turns out that we can't have kids? You know, that would be terrible. And we'll have to figure out what we're going to do from there. Obviously not worrying about that until it's determined that that's actually the case. But I do understand that a lot of that is, it's, it's a, that's a very empathetic way of looking at it. And I think that you're right. And I think that as it becomes, because we have seen a decline in birth rates and it's not just because people don't want to have kids. It's because of biological factors. And they're saying they're finding these little microplastics in people's lungs and they're finding it in babies, you know, in utero and stuff like that. Very disturbing, which to me makes it all the more imperative that we 
kind of try to solve the abortion problem. And at the end of the day, I think that the only way to fix abortion is to make very, very deep cultural changes that do not come from the top down. Yeah. It has to start at the bottom up. And this is exactly what Andy and I are trying to trying to get into with our own little show and with our own little book club, which by the way, somebody recommended we read the anarchist handbook. And I said, Oh, I don't think we're going to do that. I think we want to read the white pill from Michael Malice because that's our shtick. I finished it yesterday. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Okay. So we really want to do that one for sure, because that's exactly what we're, what we're going for. We think that we can walk back a lot of this cultural dissonance by encouraging people to talk to people they don't agree with. People who are in good faith, because there are some people that you cannot convince at the end of the day. I really just think that's the bottom line. There are people who are too far gone. You're never going to change their mind. You're going to try to, they'll probably, they might try to ruin your life. And sometimes that's a risk that you can't or don't want to take. But I think that cultural change has to be, we have to rebuild families. I, I don't know how to do this stuff. Honestly. Well, I could tell you, I could tell you two things I think that would really work. Cause if yeah. you look at like gay rights, right? One of the reasons gay rights became much more of a thing is more and more people came out and it's very different to have this kind of antipathy towards gay rights when it's your neighbor or your coworker, your cousin or your uncle. It's like, wait a minute. I know someone who applies to, it's not just them, some amorphous thing. There are these videos on YouTube where I challenge people to watch it and not start crying where people whose like son or daughter died in a car crash who became organ donors and they meet the person who has the heart of their child beating in their chest. And it's extremely, extremely emotional. And it's just like, yes, I lost my child, which is the worst thing ever. But like I, I, my child in dying managed to save the life of your child. And it's just, just really humanity at its best. And I bet you one of the things that would happen is that people who are considering, especially like a little later along, uh, having an abortion, if they met couples who were like, I'll take that kid from you. Look at my house, please. Like you, I will do anything. You, you will make me so happy. Like I'll, I'll pay, you know what? And when you put in those terms, all of a sudden, now I know people also have issues with, is that technically surrogacy at that point? I don't know. But the point is just like for me, as I met more and more couples who had kids and talked to them, and then it stops being an abstraction and starts being, you know, I know that little child, you know, my sister has two kids, my nephew. So it becomes a very different situation as you get older and as you know more, know more people. And especially if you know more people who have personally changed their perspective of like, especially once you have a kid, like I think every woman I know who's had a kid is like, this has made me so much more, if not totally pro-life, it's certainly amenable to the pro-life position. That's exactly what happened to Dave Smith. And I asked him, I was like, so you're pro-life. What made you pro-life? He's like, well, I had my first kid. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. And I think for some people, that's what it takes. And yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe for others, it's just watching people being like, I really want to have kids. Shall I take your order or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. I remember the most despicable thing I think I saw after Roe was the leftists who jumped on Twitter to quickly say, 
oh, we'll adopt your baby. And it's like the couple, you know, the gun couple from the their front porch. I forget their last names, but oh, we'll adopt your children. And it's like, you know, um, Donald Jr. and his wife and Ivanka and uh, Jared. And they're like, oh, we're going to adopt your kid. I'm like, yes, those people would happily adopt your babies because those aren't horrible people. You just yeah. don't agree with them ideologically. And that made me so furious because their point wasn't that there aren't people out there who will adopt kids. It's that your baby might be raised by the wrong person and it's better that they would be dead. Like it's a little bit like that image of the poor little kid sleeping on a very dirty, disgusting mattress. And it says something along the lines of just because you're alive doesn't mean your life is worth living or something. And I was oh like, my God, so he's poor and it would be better if he were dead. Really? Is that the, is that the angle we're taking here? But I feel like the whole row thing was just masks slipping. Wait, left. And hold on. And even if it were, who the hell are you to tell that kid his life would be better? Exactly. Well, we know so many stories of amazing people who have come from incredibly challenging backgrounds. If anything, coming from a hard background builds your character in incredible ways like you can reach great heights and especially in such a cool country as the u.s but man that made me was <laughs> really infuriating because i was like so what you're saying is you should be dead not poor really really is that the angle we're going with there's That's many countries on earth where everyone there except for like the ruling elite is like destitute and right. it's, it's and food scarcity I, I remember i forget what country in africa there's one where they had the lockdowns and like if we lock down for two weeks we all starve we're living yeah. hand to mouth and they're right. like too bad. It's like, what? So we should just wipe that country. That, that makes it like, where's the, 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 the logical conclusion of that kind of thinking. It's also very kind of Marie Antoinette. Like we don't have the, the peasants don't have bread, let them eat cake. It's just yeah. like, you know, sometimes people really are going through it and they will for their whole lives. But for you to be like, well, I, because I couldn't live like that. Therefore no one should. It's like, you know, talk about eugenics. That, that's eugenics at its worst. Right. Well, I was I was mentioning this actually earlier today, but they actually conducted a survey where they talked to people right after um, they were paralyzed. They talked to one set of people right after they were paralyzed, like their whole body is completely paralyzed. And they talked to another group of people right after they won the lottery. And then they checked back with those people after a year. And both groups were like, my life's pretty okay. You know, it's not great. It's not perfect, but it's all right. You know, I'm getting along. I'm paralyzed. Sure. It's fine. I won the lottery. Sure. My life isn't all that great. You rise to wherever you you're forced to live, right? you you rise to the occasion humans do. It's incredible. Humans are the most adaptable things on earth. As far as I'm concerned, we'll adapt to immense poverty. You can, you can adapt to living in a concentration camp camp. Victor Frankl's one of my heroes because he went into a concentration camp, he came out a strong person, and he worked for the rest of his life to make other people's lives better. And as far as I'm concerned, the fact that humans can adapt to anything is such a strong case against, for example, you should be poor and you should be dead instead of being poor. That's just like, that that reveals such a lack of understanding of human nature. It's, it's distressing. And, and I forget where I was going with that. But yeah, I just... I'm very strongly pro-life for reasons that are not religious. They're more scientific than anything, but it's also because I'm a philosophical person. It's like, there are plenty of things that science can't explain, but I do recall in anatomy and physiology, my teacher got up in front of us and said completely placidly, 
This is when you're, con- when you're conceived is where your life begins. You start to form your own DNA. You're a separate entity from your, per- your mother, even though, you know, you're the size of whatever grain of sand. And then from there, you're your own person, pop out, continue to be your own person. And I was like, that's to me is the only thing that makes sense. There is no other arbitrary point at which you can say you're your own person, you're alive, you're a separate entity or you're not just conception was it to me to me that makes a lot of sense but one of the things i predicted and it wasn't exactly a, a big nostradamus is now that roe v wade is overturned you're going to have increasing numbers of pro-choice politicians being forced to answer when they think uh a concept uh it's a, it gets considered human life and, and what you know when would you draw the line on abortion with roe they kind of had their hands clean and, and they didn't have to get concerned other than saying oh women right to choose women to choose i'm curious if you saw uh, uh, um, Georgia's incumbent governor, Stacey Abrams, on Fox News recently, where she was asked, and as governor, you are in the position to set this policy. It's the most, you know, on issue question possible. And the host, I forget who it was, um, just asked, okay, you know, when, in your opinion, you know, gubernatorial candidate running for reelection, when do you think, you know, human life is at heartbeat? Because she criticized uh, Kemp's. A heartbeat bill she's like, okay if it's not the heartbeat it's a conception is a viability is it nine months and she just gave this like like one minute blather about we can't be sure when conception actually happens and it's like that's not an answer and the law can't be like when is abortion loud we can't be sure signed governor no. yeah <laughs> nailed it um yeah i remember when she got up there and she said that a fetal heartbeat is propaganda by men to trick women into keeping their babies I would, my mind was blown. First of all, you start to get a heartbeat at about six weeks of fetal development. So this is very early on. They're like, oh, it's just like cardiac pull activity. Yeah, that's what a heartbeat is. That's how that works. <laughs> that like floored me. I'm like, people really don't, either they don't understand this or they're arguing in such bad faith, they've convinced themselves that's correct. Because I think it was David French who was like, oh, it's just cardiac, you know, pull activity. And I'm like, you serious it's something that you can see i think a sonogram is i don't remember what it what the difference is but you're actually able to hear what's going on it's not the machine that's the other thing she tried to claim that's the thing that abortion activists try to say is that it's just the machine making that sound it's like no it's of course it's not of course it's not the case you have like is every single ultrasound technician on the side of you know right white supremacies white supremacist males who are trying to force women to keep their babies no of course not that's insanity but this is really what they argue because they know that they're wrong i really i'm convinced at this point that they do know that they're in the wrong on this one i don't think they do i think they just don't think about it possibly not except for the ones who are really into it in some kind of very sick way but i think a lot of them are just like don't really put two and two together because it's a very slippery slope because it's for everyone to be like all right I think literally 90 plus percent of people, if you're saying talking about nine months, they're like, this is murder. You're crazy. Like, period. It's not even a question. And I think there's a, I don't know. What the, I don't have the polls in front of me. But if we're talking about the first month, you know, people would be much more they're clearly much more comfortable with that. Right. right. And, and, you know, if someone is, is you know, and, and it's also very common for women to lose the kid in, in the first trimester. You don't tell people until you're further along. And that's a tragedy. I wish on no one. But like that, that also it's a common occurrence. It's not uncommon. Right. It's so natural. it's like, OK, where are you going to draw the line? But if they're drawing lines, they they you really got to be sure you're drawing it on the, the near side, not the far side. 
And that's where they get uncomfortable because you're going to be alienating a lot of especially college-educated women who have been taught that they can always say no but never have to hear it. Right. I think that's exactly, I really think, man, the ways in which women have been lied to, and this is just one example, but I, I, I feel like there's going to be a comeuppance for all of the lies that women have been sold. And I think that the fact that women are such heavy users of antidepressants yes. is, is such a clear sign. Like we forced women into the workplace, which depressed people's wages whenever that was, I think in the seventies. And then we were like, Oh, good, cool. Now you can do your own thing. You can be a strong, independent woman. And it's like, well, actually you're now, instead of being the pivotal co-member of your, the head of your household with your husband, you're just another cog in this big capitalist machine that you say that you hate, but you despise like the natural order of the family so much that you're willing to, uh, you're willing to accommodate being a cog in order to own the, the natural order really disturbing. And I don't think that most women ever see the dissonance there. And I don't think they ever understand why they're unhappy because they're not self-reflective enough. It just, the plight of modern women breaks my heart more than anything. And I'm not on the side of the MGTOW who says it's all women's fault. This happens. I'm like, no, you've been lied to. And so have they like since birth, they've been told that they can do anything a man can do. I have always said that I would infinitely prefer to be a first rate woman, not a second rate man. And I cannot fathom why a woman would want to try to do all the things that a man can do, because believe me, you mean when you'd I rather say, be yourself than Seamus. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. He's wonderful. He's off doing wonderful Catholic things right now, but yeah, I, I would infinitely prefer to just be myself because there are so many wonderful things that women do that men can't. And I think that that's been so undermined in our society when we put Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of you know women of the year and then we let in you know Leah Thomas and we have all these people and we're like well these are women and it's like are they is that all it takes because I that's disappointing that's very sad and I feel like women are going to if women continue to be agreeable as women are women will end up losing out on everything they've worked all of this equality that they've tried to achieve over years of feminism are you familiar with Phyllis Schlafly? Have you watched her videos? A little bit. She's conservative, right? Yeah, she passed away, but she uh, she was single-handedly took down the ERA. Um, and it was really kind of funny because whenever she gave talks, she would open it by saying, I would like to thank my husband for allowing me to speak here tonight. And, and everyone <laughs> just lost their minds. She's um, that kind of lady. <laughs> when she started, ERA was in the platform of both political parties. It had been passed by like 30 states. And her whole point is like, from a legal perspective, if men and women have to legally be regarded as equal, because the judge is blind, the judge can't distinguish, well, then you can't have a draft of only men. Women have to be legally drafted. Uh, you're going to have gay marriage because legally you can't say I can't marry another male because just because of my gender. Well, that's already that ship has sailed. But she had a whole list of things where it's just like the consequences legally of passing this and regarding the two sexes as legally equal is you kind of have a, a or like Wellesley can no longer exist, right? Because I, as a male, if my grades are good enough, I legally now equally to women, I have to be able to go there. So, you know, it, it, this was feminism's very first like massive defeat after the, the you know, the, the rise of uh, Betty Friedan and, and now. 
I am going to have to look into Phyllis Schlafly for sure. She sounds like a lovely and charming lady. <laughs> Super religious. There's lots of clips of her on YouTube. She really very much was, she's a Trump fan, of course. When she was like 90, she passed away, I think in 2000. She passed away in November 2016, I believe. But the point was, what was funny about her, she always had a smile on her face and she used humor and aggression in a way that many other like uh, um, uh, women don't. Who do you most regret not get besides Trump not getting a chance to book on Timcast oh gosh there were a couple of people I really wanted to get Matt Taibbi and oh Glenn. yeah yeah that would have been great right that never happened oh I know I can't never forgive myself no I was we supposed tried. to be on with him no man we tried that ended up falling through I know life happens it's whatever I think he was sick when we were planning to have him and then of course Glenn is down in wherever he's at right now what country is he he's Brazil. in Brazil Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he would have been almost impossible to get. Um, who else did I really want to get? There are a few other people. You never got, did you ever get Tulsi? You never got her. No, we didn't. I even told Tim, I was like, Hey, you have this event with Tulsi. You got to ask her. She'll come on. And I was like working with her. Um, I was like working with her, her people to be like, like, um, okay, can we get her, you know, can we bring her in? Um, it's very hard for most politicians. I'm sure she would have been different, but it's hard for politicians to sit down and speak frankly for two hours. Yeah. Because so much of their job is around maintaining this impression of being like, you know, perfectly poised and unflappable or whatever. Um, it makes them kind of difficult to talk to, but I can't believe, yeah, I didn't get her. And then oh, I wanted to get Camille Paglia. Paglia, she she won't do it. She doesn't do podcasts or anything. Yeah, she's my idol. Yeah, I know. She would have been really fun. Really, really fun to have. And of course, Jordan Peterson. I would have loved to. Oh, yeah. We had Michaela. That was really fun. Um, but not her dad, unfortunate. Um, I talked to Heather Haying. I always want to call her Heather Hare. That's not correct. Heather Haying, um, Brett Weinstein's wife. And I really wanted to bring her too. I wanted to bring all the ladies. I remember when I started at Tim Cast, I was like, I'm going to bring all these guests in. Am I going to feel like insecure if I bring these other women in? And I was like, no, these ladies are awesome. Like they're, they're fantastic. They're deep thinkers and, and really valuable voices. We had Naomi Wolf. She was really fun. But she's, she's a loon. She's a spicy character. I will yeah. say that. I would never insult my guests, but she's a spicy, spicy lady. And we talked to her about some of the things that she had been um, coming up with. And we kind of challenged her on a little bit. That's why I like the show. Really like the fact that we would always challenge people on stuff that they'd said in the past. So, yeah. So what, you talked about the book club. Talk a little bit more. What's the next, what are the next steps for you? Okay. So I'm actually going to record probably a short 12 to 15 minute video after this. Um, I'm probably going to live stream it because that's a lot of fun. And I really enjoy engaging with the uh, audience like that, but we want to make a book club. We want to do gardening. We want to do self-sustainable stuff. We want to build our own family and like walk through those steps together. I want to bring a bunch of moms together to talk about the challenges of having kids in this crazy world right now. We're just looking to kind of figure out some of the best ways to support cultural cohesion, which involves very heavy emphasis on the family and on traditional ideas like men doing men stuff and ladies doing lady stuff um, and trying to teach your kids the correct things in the right way. So we are going to be taking 
ground up approach. Whereas I felt like with IRL, we were definitely 30,000 foot view, looking down on things that were happening and being kind of black pilled about it. So we try to be white pilling people, getting people connected with their own communities. And I'm really looking forward to it. Are you white pilled or black pilled about the future of America? I'm pragmatic. I'm not white pilled because I see that things are in terrible state, but I am optimistic that there are things, there are steps we can take to halt this kind of weird national divorce we're facing down. How you, about you? You don't want the national divorce? See, here's the thing. I think that I love the country the way it is. I feel but like you just said things are in terrible state. <laughs> I love America. They things are in terrible terrible state because we've allowed ideologues to control the conversation for too long. But I think that the best approach to fixing that problem is to solve some of the issues that we've allowed to take hold, like all of the lies that we've allowed women to believe. Wait, hold on. Heard. When have ideologues not controlled this conversation? Ideologues founded this country. That's a good point. Don't challenge me like this, Michael. No, but I mean, like, <laughs> ideologues right, are the right. only ones having the conversations. Everyone else just wants to live their lives. People, I think that's that that might be the issue. All the good, normal people who just want to live their own lives are kind of allowing this to happen. Yeah. So Tim would call people out and he was like, if you don't stand up, you know, your kids are going to suffer in the future for it, which I think is a very fair criticism. But people are afraid. You know, they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to lose their jobs. They've been made to be afraid. This is by design, of course. Exactly. The other thing I have noticed is that people have been made to feel isolated. They've been yes. made to feel like they're the crazy ones. Yes. Actually, this is something I brought up at our event. We had an event where like 200 people showed up and we all kind of hung out and we had, you know, live music and jokes and stuff. Really great event. And when I was given a chance to speak, I said, if you ever feel like you're all alone in your views, I want you to think about this moment and all of the people right now. Yeah, yeah. All this way to hang out with you. You're not alone. Don't listen to the media. You don't have to believe what they it's say. It's so easy to shit on social media. But I'm I'm a lot older than you. I'm sorry. There's it's so much better than when you were a kid. Because when I was a kid, excuse me. When you're I was a kid, like you could be the kid in your school who's like into like breeding hamsters or guinea pigs. But now it's it, it takes two seconds to have the fi- the guinea pig or the hamster community or whatever your hobby you're interested in, and you don't have to feel alone. And that's the power of the internet. Right, right. And that can be positive or it can be negative. Sure. If you have a really bad hobby or really immoral like propensity, you're going to find people who agree with you on the internet. That's not necessarily for the best. That's my career. (laughs) (laughs) It can give you a sense of like camaraderie where you didn't expect it before. But to clarify, I am white-pilled on the future of the country because I think that normal people, I hope that normal people are going to start to realize that they can make a difference. And part of what my husband, Andy, and I are going to be trying to do is giving people the tools to do that. It's not enough to tell people that you need to stand up, which is something that Tim was good at doing. But I was like, okay, but how? How are we going to do that? What do you do? You're going to go talk to your neighbors. You're going to find people you disagree with and you're going to pair it back until you figure out something that you do agree on. And then you're going to go from there. Like, okay, well, we agree that everyone should have healthcare. Should it be through the government or should it be through the free market? We can disagree on that. We can agree that the current state of affairs with American healthcare, total disaster, total mess. It's not the way it should be. 
what are some practical things we could do that are not partisan that might fix some of these problems? So I don't know if you're familiar with Carrie Smith, but she used to host these conversational dinners where you just go and talk to other people. And they were very successful from what I would call, recall because they would bring in people who just were kind of moderate, kind of doing their own thing. And it's like, okay, well, you're about to be challenged. It was almost a little bit like Toastmasters because I think there was an element of kind of public speaking where you'd need to kind of defend what you thought to people who did not always agree with you. I think that's such a wonderful practice. I used to do speech and debate when I was in high school. Incredibly useful. You would build your own case. And if you are on the affirmative side, if you're presenting a new case for doing things, you would be forced to defend your case by explaining exactly why things should not stay the same. That's a burden of proof on you. Whereas if you're on the negative side, All you have to do is be like, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter. Things are fine the way they are. We don't have to change anything. So um, I feel like if kids would start doing that again, I think that would help shape the future of the U.S. in a positive way too. So there you go. Lydia, running out of time, what has been your favorite part of this interview? Oh my gosh. Just getting to talk to you again, honestly. In fact, if you don't mind, I have right behind me. I have to show you this. This is really cool. So I finally bought these. You're going to make fun of me, but I've been growing my succulents. Those are lithops. Yeah. Look at those little butts. Yeah. I love them so much. They're doing great. There's a little tiny one in there. If you can see it, I repotted them just the way you're supposed to. And they are doing great. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid. You know, I don't ever want to, I'm, you know, I'm ready to get hurt again. I see this post all the time. I'm starting my little again, but I am collecting succulents now. I have far too many. You've influenced me in that regard. And before this interview, I was telling Andy, I was like, you know, I think that I was so lucky to be able to go get a hamburger with Michael Malice at one time over in Leesburg. That was really fun, right? We went and got coffee. We gossiped a little bit, but only in the most neutral ways. (laughs) You are welcome. 